Good evening, everybody. We don't really know when Chopin's birthday is, but it might be that today's his 200th birthday. I just want to put that out there. Because, you know, occasionally you read some composer, the baptismal certificate was such and such, and they think it was a, a week before, and so they don't know the exact date. So with Chopin, we don't really even know the exact year. It's either 1809 or 1810. But if it was February 23rd, 1810, close enough, right? So in any case, Chopin stands unique because although many composers were pianists, most of the great composers tended to write for lots of different kinds of instrumental combinations. They wrote symphonies and they wrote operas and they wrote string quartets. And Chopin was completely content to write exclusively for the piano. Yes, there are a couple of works for piano and cello, and even one work for piano and cello and violin, and songs for piano and voice, a few of them. But no work does not include the piano, and the piano is the central focus in everything. Chopin was born near Warsaw in 1809 or 1810, and his immediate uh, family recognized right away that he had special talents. His father was French. His father had come, Nicolas Chopin, had come from France to Poland in order to get away from the French Revolution, sensibly. And uh, he was now working as a clerk in a tobacco company. And so um, as he lived in Poland and learned Polish better, he began to get jobs teaching French to Polish people. So the Chopin family lived near the university and Chopin was in an environment of sophisticated, educated people from an early age. Uh, in addition to being a very gifted pianist by the time he was five or six, he was reading and writing poetry, and he was a good uh, drawer. So all through his life, he had interest not only in music, but in literature, in poetry, in art. And he was able to live in a society of people who did those things. At the same time, though, and you have to read between the lines, Chopin seems to be a person who was very able to get along with people, but really lived almost exclusively within himself. And, and I can only say that piecing together evidence, because if you read about Mozart or Verdi, the last two composers I talked about here, there are hundreds of letters and friends, and everybody has anecdotes, and uh, the personalities of these composers emerge very clearly. Uh, with Chopin, all we can see is that from a very early age, he's uh, sitting down at the piano and creating pieces. Now, what's different? He lives in um, Warsaw, so he's exposed to a certain amount of music. He hears harmonies and creates a whole harmonic world that didn't exist before. Even though Chopin wrote as I say, almost exclusively for the piano, he influenced the musical romantic movement perhaps more than any other composer. Tchaikovsky, Brahms, uh, of course his contemporaries like Schumann and Mendelssohn, all were aware of his music and his overwhelming musical presence. So I want to just show you um, some of the things that, that Chopin did. He was brought up on a diet of Bach and Mozart, who remained his favorite composers. 
So it wasn't that he uh, longed to break away. It was just that his composing, which was largely improvising that he then wrote down, uh, always involved some... Uh, that was the version the publishers printed because they couldn't believe that what Chopin had written... in harmonies that went beyond the harmonies that existed in his era. So when, um, when I play you some of the music of Chopin, I think that you'll notice over and over that this is 1830, 1835, 1840. Beethoven had only been dead for a few years. Uh, Schubert, shortly after Beethoven. And, and here is Chopin, the first person pioneering a new harmonic world. Okay, we all know that there was a romantic movement in literature, and we know that romantic literature favors passion over reason. We know that it favors the exotic over the familiar. What does it mean in music? Well, on an emotional level, it means those same things. But what it also meant was that the piano had developed as an instrument and hand in hand with the artistic spirit of the times, a new instrument allowed new possibilities. If Mozart wanted to support a melody on the piano, he would use something called an Alberti bass, maybe. Or maybe even something like this. But Chopin, working with pianos that had expanded two octaves in range since the time of Mozart, and even more importantly, had hammers for the first time that were not hard, but had soft leather or felt, could produce a much more sweet singing tone from a piano. So uh, if, if um, Mozart had written Chopin's E-flat Nocturne, he might have written... the way Mozart accompanied his melodies. But Chopin, with these new pianos, could write... bass note to make this note sing out longer than it could have on Mozart's piano or Beethoven's piano or even Schubert's piano. And thus was born this era of wonderful melodic romantic piano writing. Another feature is that Mozart's ear and even Beethoven's ear still was hearing in old temperament. By the time of the early 19th century, old temperament had vanished from people's hearing so that those mysterious keys of D-flat major and G-flat major and F-sharp major and E-flat minor with all those sharps and flats that make it hard for us to sight read have um, just the same good tuning as the keys that don't have sharps and flats. Without even going into a discussion of that, take my word for it, 
But um, Chopin suddenly writes, uh, all, you know, those of you who have, who have played know there are lots of pieces in D flat major and so forth. So um, new keys really open up. Plus, the whole romantic musical sensibility takes us from, uh, let's say we're in E major, and suddenly this G sharp becomes an A flat, and suddenly this... keys all work, we can uh, shift from one key to a completely unrelated key just by one common note. So in romantic music, and certainly the music of Chopin, you'll hear more and more of this uh, magical trickery where suddenly we're transported into another key. Uh, I'll play you a piece that illustrates this. Uh, this was written when Chopin was 24. It's this scherzo in B-flat minor. Now, uh, a scherzo for Beethoven was the quick movement of a symphony in 3-4, and uh, uh, it's sort of like a minuet on steroids. It was kicked up in tempo, and for Chopin, it becomes something totally different. He wrote four of these, three of them in minor keys, and uh, they certainly have serious content, although they, they don't all end tragically. So this is Chopin's scherzo in B-flat
I had a piano teacher in England when I was 16, and her name was Claire James. She was born in 1899, and she was in the lineage of studying with a woman who had herself studied with Clara Schumann. So she uh, was always looking for new musical information. And apparently, when she was younger, she had gone to Poland, and she was out in a field, and she heard a shepherd playing a violin. And she heard the shepherd playing. And she thought, oh my gosh, these Polish people are so cultured because they know Chopin's piano <laughs> And so she went back to the village and she said, I heard this tune from the B-flat minor scherzo. And this guy said, I, don't ask me, but I know a woman you can see who can tell you all about this. So my old teacher, Claire James, went to Madame Zorzhazhovska. I never saw that written. I heard her say it, so I have no idea what it looks like. But Madame Zorzhazhovska had kept a book of all of the popular folk songs and lullabies and Polish ethnic tunes that Chopin used in his music. But, of course, he harmonized them and he expanded them. You can bet that the Polish folk tune didn't go. everybody nightmares. So <laughs> Georgia Zhovska promised Claire James that she would give her this book, but she wanted to copy it out or something. And in any case, Claire James was never able to go back because later that day she found out that it was 1939 and she needed to get on the last train out of Poland. So she never was able to get back until after World War II and Madame Georgia Zhovska was long gone. So all we know is that many of these melodies were actual Polish melodies. I know that the middle part of the B minor scherzo, the scherzo, in the middle it has. Which is a Polish lullaby. So Chopin did take a lot of these Polish melodies. Why? Uh, when Chopin was 20, 1830, he traveled to Vienna and hoped that uh, he would make a career in Vienna. He wrote some waltzes, you know that. Uh, but he didn't really love Vienna, and the Viennese only loved him for a certain amount of time. So <laughs> he thought that he would go on to London. He made it as far as Paris, and pretty much stayed in Paris the rest of his life. That is to say, until he was about 40. And Chopin was never able to go back to Poland, because by 1830, the Russians had come in and so he was essentially a political exile. He never learned French the way his father, who'd grown up in French, learned Polish. So he was always a Pole living in Paris, and he always felt Poland. So I think that much of his music reflects a feeling of, um, I am here, but my heart is there. And so that all this Polish music comes up uh, is not surprising. One piece that he wrote uh, after he came uh, to Paris was his first ballade. Now, Chopin never used descriptive titles for his pieces. Uh, the romantics around him, Berlioz and Schumann, they were all coming up with titles that, um, you know, uh, Schumann's Carnival and Papillon, Butterflies and, and Chrysleriana and all this music that has programmatic content 
Berlioz, of course, with the march to the scaffold. Uh, Chopin never tells us anything. He, he calls a piece a nocturne or a scherzo or a ballade or a sonata or a mazurka, but it never has titles. When they were published in England, you know, nocturne number seven would get published as the garden under the moonlight or something like that, but Chopin never approved any of that. So um, this is a piece, though, where we do actually know the programmatic content. Chopin met a great Polish poet in, in Paris named Adam Mickiewicz, and Mickiewicz wrote a series of poems called ballades. This one, uh, this particular ballade, the G minor ballade, Chopin said was based on a poem by Mickiewicz uh, called Adam Wallenrod. Adam Wallenrod is a medieval Polish subject. Adam is a pagan and he is captured at an early age and raised by Catholics. And he thinks he's a normal Catholic until, <laughs> stick with me, <laughs> until he hears a troubadour sing a song that suddenly floods his memory with everything from his youth. And he remembers, I don't know, hugging trees. But suddenly, all of his pagan roots come back to him. And all he wants to do is massacre the Catholics who have raised him. So uh, meanwhile, he's married to a Catholic woman. And um, he, he uh, has these surges more and more. So the tune, the troubadour's tune is. never knew that was a pagan tune. Um, so the troubadour's tune comes more and more strongly through the piece until finally Adam betrays the groups, the, the, the um, crusaders actually, who are raising him and uh, he is exiled by them and he takes his wife and at the last moment she refuses to go with him because he's betrayed his people so he has to leave forever alone. And this is how Chopin felt at the age of 21. So uh, this is the G minor ballade. I just want to say that programmatic content in Chopin is more of an overall feeling or a sentiment that inspires a piece rather than, and this is the moment where this happens. So it's not film music, but in this case it is programmatic music in that it's inspired by a poetry that we actually know.
course makes me feel great, but <laughs> uh, I just want to plug for one second that in September Lang Lang is coming and October Murray Pariah is coming, so <laughs> this is all in my mind. And um, So my intent is to give the, the overall shape and creative ideas in Chopin. I know that uh, sometimes that's there and sometimes it's not. There. But in any case, Chopin develops a society in Paris where Berlioz and Liszt and uh, Balzac and the painter Delacroix and uh, many of the artistic luminaries of the time are his friends and he sees them regularly and yet, as I say, he remains aloof. The little bit of indication we have is that he had some romances there are a few pieces dedicated to women. There was one woman to whom he was briefly engaged. Uh, sometimes a piece is dedicated, but sometimes when he gets another love interest, he rededicates the piece to the new person. <laughs> so, you know, the focus for him is, is on just writing. And then the one person who really comes into his life and makes a difference is the novelist Georges Sand. Her real name was Aurore Dudevant and she dressed like a man sometimes for parties and smoked cigars, and she was a great character. In any case, though, when Chopin was 27 and she met him, they developed a romance that lasted 10 years, much longer than anything else in Chopin's life. And because she was so worldly and experienced, I think that um, she saw the value in protecting this rather sickly person and uh, giving him the opportunity to compose more. And to a certain extent, she succeeded. When his health, which was always shaky, began to deteriorate, she took him to Mallorca so that he could have a change of air. And uh, this didn't work out in the end so well because the landlord heard him coughing and he always had pulmonary troubles. So they, they kicked him out and for a while they were in a place with no, no uh, ventilation or heating of any kind and it was, it was even worse. But overall, Georges Sand's effect on Chopin's life was very positive. And we have many of his greatest works thanks to her being lover, companion, nursemaid, everything else. Well, not everything else. The one other thing Chopin hated to do was write down music. He improvised like nobody else. From everything we know, most of these pieces were pretty much composed because he sat down and played them. And the hardest thing was to get them on paper. So he had a Polish friend, a childhood friend, named Julian Fontana. And Julian Fontana would write these pieces down as best he could. And then Chopin would go over them and figure out what, what needed to be changed. But Chopin, because he was an improviser, didn't really care that it was always exactly the same way. So there are lots of different versions of any Chopin piece that we have. And um, sometimes it's hard to figure out what Chopin wanted himself or what he may have just given to a pupil because he thought they would enjoy some variant. Uh, Chopin gave lessons, supported himself giving lessons, but in his entire career, great pianist though he was, he gave a grand total of 30 concerts, which is just about nothing. So, so really, his income was, was lessons. And uh, Georges Saint helped him keep body and soul together uh, for a good decade. So. Uh, Julian Fontana went to England for a little while and Chopin sent him a piece as a present. Um, later, Fontana went to publish the piece and Chopin was annoyed because he didn't think the piece was good enough for publication and he didn't ever want it to reach the public. 
but um, you probably know it. Uh, Chopin called it impromptu, and when Fontana published it, he renamed it the fantasy impromptu. So uh, this was a piece that we were never meant to hear. <laughs> but we're not the first people to have heard it.
I promise to keep the second half shorter than the first half. But I thought this would be the moment, rather than at the very end, to say, are, are there questions on anybody's mind um, that, that you want to ask? I mean, since we're an intimate, familial group here, uh, either about Chopin or, or what it's like to try to play or anything. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard this, and I don't know whether it's true or not, that back in those days when um, the pianists uh, like Chopin were sort of the rock stars of their era. They were. They played uh, big concerts and some of them made good money. And piracy was rampant. You know, the first person to develop the solo recital was not Chopin, it was Liszt. And Chopin, as I said, gave very few concerts, but they weren't solo recitals the way we think of them. Often it would be a shared recital with Liszt or other musicians. And of course, in those days, people still split works up and played, uh, you know, a, a movement of this person's symphony and a movement of this, uh, this scene from this ballet. So our modern ideas about the integrity of performing gigantic works as a whole from beginning to end didn't really exist for them. So of Chopin's works, and there are like 230 of them, most of them are from a minute to eight or nine minutes because that was the perfect length for salon and for concerts then. So piracy, great thing. Uh, I don't mean piracy is a great thing, great question. Uh, <laughs> when, when somebody wrote a tune, it was public. There were no intellectual property laws. So uh, when Liszt went to hear an opera, the next night he would be entertaining with a paraphrase from that opera. And everybody knew that that's how it was going to work. Now, one reason that Chopin may not have wanted the uh, fantasy impromptu to be published is that um, is a direct quotation from the third movement of the Moonlight Sonata, Beethoven's, and, and he may have thought that he didn't want, you know. But, but then uh, Chopin wrote an impromptu, and Brahms wrote a song 30 years later that goes, and somebody said to him, that's Chopin's impromptu, and he said, any meathead can see that. <laughs> so. It didn't bother people then. And, and um, you know, it, it's, uh, it was much more of a cult of the performer, just as you say. So uh, there were performers like Liszt and um, Paganini who felt like it was not demeaning to themselves or to art to figure out what the maximum number of people wanted and to provide it. And then at the other end of the spectrum were composers like Chopin and Schumann who felt like uh, the masses were Philistines and um, that they, they had their own private world. And of course, that was a very romantic, with a capital R, concept. So Chopin was the opposite end. Liszt, Liszt said, you know, it's not my, um, my serious music that gets me to be able to provide a champagne and salmon supper for, say, all of us. It's the paraphrase of Robert Le Diable. It's the paraphrase of Don Giovanni. It's the paraphrase of Rigoletto. So yeah, he, he happily stole all that music, and nobody could object. Well, I, I thought that one of the things that, that uh, Liszt 
They're so complex and there's stuff that nobody can steal. Well, <laughs> maybe that was why he wrote stuff that was so hard. But you know, there's a great story that um, the Chopin etudes, you notice I'm not even trying to play any of those tonight. The Chopin etudes were the pinnacle of difficult piano music. And of course, Liszt played them all. And Chopin very much envied Liszt's way of playing the Chopin etudes. Although he said he is a jackass when he plays my mazurkas. But um, <laughs> Liszt was not content just to play these very difficult pieces. Uh, supposedly, Liszt was giving a master class and somebody played the revolutionary etude, except they played the left hand in octaves. And uh, everybody jumped up and was excited, and Liszt, who was not to be outdone, then sat down and played the, the what they call the firefly etude. The except he played the right hand in octaves, pianissimo. So he, Liszt would never let anybody outdo him as a pianist. You know, that was the deal. So um, Chopin, meanwhile, was content really to be heard by groups uh, never even as large as this, except for a few times in his life. And uh, his, his living room was a shrine. He would give uh, lessons, and he would have salons, but uh, the public concert stage was not for him. So we talk about these ballades. He really was the first composer to use the ballade as a musical form. And uh, again, Chopin wrote four ballades. He turned to the poetry of Adam Mickiewicz, uh, another expatriate Pole who was living in Paris. And this time the poem was Undine, or Ondine. Ondine is a magical creature that lives below the surface of the water. And a mortal would undoubtedly find Ondine very beautiful, but it would be fatal to that person to touch her, as alluring as she might be. So again, when Chopin writes programmatic music, we can't say, here's the moment where Ondine dives back in the water. But um, there's certainly the seductive quality, and then you hear the lapping of the water. And then occasionally uh, some warnings. Do not fall in love with this supernatural being. <laughs> da -da -da -da. And you'll hear the chromatic notes that warn, warn the, the uncautious mortal. So uh, this is Chopin's ballade in A-flat. This, by the way, is the uh, a later period uh, once he is together with uh, Georges Sand.
With some composers, there are very distinct changes between their early style and their late style. You'll hear people talk about late Beethoven as if that's a whole different composer than early Beethoven. And certainly, there are composers, first of all, who lived longer than Chopin, whose music undergoes a huge transformation. But there are composers like Schubert and Chopin who write music in their teens already like they're fully mature composers. And uh, in later life, you can detect differences in their music, but it's more subtle. It's much more subtle. Uh, Chopin developed the piano polonaise. He originally took, as he did with the mazurkas, a Polish dance form. Polonaise means Polish. And he used the rhythms, always in 3-4, and characterized by yump pa pum like the uh, military polonaise. Okay? And then there's usually a trio section. And the pa pa pum pum is a, an imitation on the piano of a drum. So there's always a, a military element. But later in life, Chopin looks back at Poland and he thinks not just about patriotism or heroism, but he creates some of these polonaises that encompass everything there is about war. So that it has a martial, heroic aspect, then it has loss, it has people mourning loss, uh, it has the sounds of cavalry. He uses all kinds of coloristic resources of the piano. And then there's even, uh, toward the end of the polonaise, I'm gonna play for you a bell that quietly begins to toll in memory of the dead soldiers. So Chopin's uh, musical style <laughs> formed by the time he was 19. But I think in this Polonaise, you can hear uh, an adult's view of, of the world. So I'm gonna play you the uh, Polonaise in A flat. <laughs> 